You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY Podcast on Apple Podcasts. We hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us wherever you're tuning in from. We're really glad that you're part of our Facebook stream, and uh, we're just uh, really thrilled about the opportunity to celebrate Easter. And I know that this is not how any of us really plan to celebrate Easter. It's certainly not uh, what I had in mind when I was preparing these messages, that uh, I would spend most of this series uh, talking to a camera instead of talking uh, to, to individual people. But we're glad that you're a part of our service uh, nonetheless. And I'll tell you that I, I really love Easter. For, for preachers, Easter is like the Super Bowl or, or the World Series, WrestleMania, whatever, whatever sport you follow, it is that for us. But it's even so much more than that. Because at Easter, obviously, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But the point of Easter is to answer a, a question that everybody should ask. And it's a really important question. And if you haven't asked it since you were a kid, or maybe you got kind of hurt in the church and you left the church for a little while and you haven't asked this question since then, or you haven't asked this question as a Christian in a really long time, you should ask it. This is the question that everybody should ask at some point in their life. And Easter points to the answer to that question. And the question is this, is who is Jesus? And the resurrection is, is what convinced his first century followers that, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was who he claimed to be. That It, it wasn't his teachings. It wasn't all the miracles that, he, that they saw him perform. It was none of those things that convinced them that he was the Son of God, that he was who he claimed to be. It was the resurrection. And we get to celebrate that today. And so I am I'm honored that you would be a part of our service for that. But if this is your first time watching uh, church services, I get Facebook is overloaded with church services right now, and maybe you're scrolling and you just stopped uh, for, on us for a moment, and this is the first time that you've ever uh, watched us, or or maybe this is the first time in just a long time that that you've uh, been a part of something. You need to know this about us: we don't just believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us so. It's it's way, way better that, than that, and it's more substantial than that. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because the first century follower of Jesus named Matthew documented the life of, of Jesus and documented the resurrection. And we believe that a Greek named Mark, got, uh, who was a friend of Peter, got Peter's story, and he documented all of these things, and he concluded in the first century that Peter was telling the truth and that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And we believe that a doctor named Luke, who was also a Greek, who, who traveled around all of Judea and traveled the world with the Apostle Paul and, and came to this conclusion that he'd met enough people who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And we believe that the Apostle Peter, who, who left two letters to the first century church, and in those two letters he declared that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who stepped on the pages of history as someone who was set out to do away with the church, he wanted to end the church, um, that he came to this conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and that he actually rose from the dead. And he knew this because of a personal revelation, but also because he spent so much time with, with Peter and with Andrew and, and James and, and John and, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. And all of these extraordinarily brave men documented what they saw, and they documented what they heard, and they documented what they heard from others, and all these people who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And these documents, they were collected and they were protected, and eventually they were put into one collection that is what we call the Bible now. But long before there was ever a Bible, 
They were people. They were men and women who were witnesses and, and friends of witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. The other person that is, a, is an eyewitness follower uh, of Jesus who also gives us his account is John. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking through the Gospel of John at, at what he calls signs that, that point it to who Jesus was, that answer the question that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And John was a witness in both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and he details it for us. But like others who follow Jesus, he did not expect a crucifixion, and he did not expect a resurrection. You know what John expected? John expected a king. John tells us that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem, and we talked about this uh, last week, this was a miracle that went beyond all other miracles because Lazarus uh, hadn't been dead for just a couple of hours. There was no mistaking that he was just you know, unconscious or just really sick. Lazarus had been dead for four days when Jesus gets there, and so, and so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and it's an unmistakable act of God. And because of this unmistakable act of God, many, many people believed after they saw what Jesus had did, they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so there's all of this groundswell of support, and they've got all of this momentum, they've got all of the people. And John said after the, this resurrection, many, many people believed in him. But the problem was, was that too many people believed in him. And Jesus have, had some enemies back in Jerusalem, and, and his enemies, they'd, they'd had enough of this, and something had to be done, and, and they just couldn't let Jesus keep on being who he was. And in their, wor- in their words, if they didn't do something about this, the whole world would go after him. <laughs> Little did they know, did they? But they knew that, uh, they knew that Jesus was going to be coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, and, and so the city's going to be crowded. There's going to be thousands of people there, and they decided that this would be the best opportunity to take him out, these religious leaders. And so they would wait till, till after all the festivities were over and as people were leaving the city, and you know, again, thousands of visitors in the city at this time. And so they decide that they're going to wait till they can isolate Jesus from the crowd, and then they would arrest him, and then they would make sure that they could convince Rome to ultimately execute Jesus. And so as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the area of Bethany and, and he's moving towards Jerusalem, the crowd knows he's coming. And he comes into the city a few days before this final Passover and, and he makes his way to the temple and he, he reaches and he teaches and he preaches. And, uh, and he works his way freely through the city and, and they're watching him at all times, waiting for a moment when they can carve him away from the crowd. And we're going to pause there for just a moment. We're going to change microphones. All right, we appreciate your patience with us as we're trying to sort out these technical issues. Facebook is just overloaded today, and so uh, what a great problem to have that thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are hearing the gospel. And so, so, so Jesus goes into the city, and while he's there, he's, you know, he's doing some teaching and some preaching, and, and then Judas runs out of patience. And so he goes to the temple leaders, and he says, uh, I, I can isolate him from the crowd. I can, I can get it him and just uh, his few followers away from from everybody at a moment and it'll be easy for you to arrest him and so he he does this deal and then towards the end of the week after jesus has come into the city he celebrates the passover with his disciples and while he's there he increases their expectations that perhaps this is the time where he's going to declare himself as king 
While they're having that meal, that last supper, Jesus announces that he's going to be establishing a new covenant. And for these Jewish young men, you've got to think about what this meant for them. They, they'd been raised listening to the Torah and, and being taught all the prophets, and they knew that the prophet Jeremiah had, had prophesied that one day God would in fact declare a brand new covenant with his people. And, that, and, and Jesus indicates that now is going to be that time. And, and so Jesus would say, you know, I'm about to inaugurate this covenant that will, that will be with all of mankind and, and that God has promised you know, for so many years, this is going to be a covenant that, that will be established in, in my blood and it will be for the entire world. And then he said this. He said the conditions of this new covenant, they're very simple. This is a covenant for the whole world and, and, and these conditions are very simple. It's one new command and this is the, the command. He would say, you are to love each other the way that I have loved you. You're to love each other the way that I have loved you. You're to love each other not the way that you've been loved, not the way that you want to be loved. This isn't do unto others before, uh, as I would have them do unto you. This isn't that at all. This is a whole other thing. Gentlemen, you are to love each other. You're to love the world the way that I, Jesus, have loved you. And then the next day, he'd put on a demonstration of love that, that would take their breath away. And this was to be the trademark. This was to be the brand of this brand new movement. Clearly, he, he, they, they thought, the disciples thought, that he was about to declare himself king. Clearly, you know, he's about to do something for the entire nation, and things are about to change. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus was about to do something for you and for me and for the entire world. They leave that meal, and that very night, as you know, Judas has, has betrayed Jesus. He's, he's worked it all out. He's isolated from the crowd, and, and Jesus is in the garden, and there he's arrested. And he's taken to the high priest where he's falsely accused, and he's beaten. Later, they would take him to Pilate because they, wanna, they want Jesus executed, and so they want him executed quickly before the crowd changes their mind on, on who this false Messiah really is. And so they take him to Pilate, and Pilate really doesn't want anything to do with this uh, but, but they convinced Pilate to talk to him. And so Pilate comes out and he says, look, guys, you know, I can find nothing wrong with this man. There are no charges worthy of death. And the crowd, the religious leaders, they all respond, well, he has to die. You have to do something about this. You have to, you have to do something. He has to die. And so Pilate gives in and he decides, you know what, I'll, I'll have him flogged. And, and maybe that'll, that'll appease their thirst uh, for, for what they're wanting here. I'll have him beaten within an inch of his life. And, and surely when I bring out this beaten and broken down, this bloody wannabe king, surely the crowd will change and this will be enough and they won't force me to execute him. And so he has Jesus flogged. And for most of us, when we read that, fl- that word uh, flogged, it means nothing to us. Or at least it meant nothing to us until we saw the brutality of the passion of the Christ where we saw what flogging really looked like. And so they do this to Jesus. They flog him. They beat him really within an inch of his life. And Pilate, he's looking for mercy from the crowd. And instead, the crowd says, no, 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 that's not enough. He has to die. You, you must crucify him because he claims to be the son of God. He, he claims to be from God. He claims to be a king. And, and Pilate, if you're a friend of Caesar, then, then you cannot be a friend of this man because he's going to take Caesar's place. So, so you've got to do something about this, Pilate. And so, so Pilate relents and he gives in. And John, who was there for all of this, says at this point the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And it says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. And it was there that they crucified him. And John doesn't give any details because no details are necessary. 
Everyone who would hear this story in the first century, everyone who would hear this story in the second century, they had, they had seen, or at least they had seen, the aftermath of a crucifixion. And then John records the words of Jesus, and John gives us a detail that, that would be unnecessary unless it were true. John said that as he stood there, there gazing and wanting to look away, but, but he's gazing and he, he wants to look away, he stood beside Mary, Jesus' mother. And this is what Jesus said to him. He said, John, Mary is now your mother, and Mary, John, is now your son. And this was Jesus' way of saying, hey, I'm getting ready to die. I need you to take care of my mom. Could, could you do that for me? And John would say, I, I was there. I heard him utter, utter these words, and then I heard him utter these last words when he said, it is finished. And then he said, I watched as he bowed his head and as he died. And then John does an unusual thing. The, the next words that John, John records, these words that if you're reading the gospel on your own, you, you, would, you would get to these words and you'd skip right by them because they don't really seem that significant. But they don't seem to carry any meaning. But these are extraordinary extraordinarily important words. John pauses and, and reflects and he makes this statement and it's not for his immediate audience but it's for future generations. It's, he makes this statement for you and for me and here's what he writes. This, he says, the man, talking about himself, he says, the man who saw it, in, in other words, I saw this, I didn't hear it, I, I didn't, this isn't hearsay, I wasn't, I wasn't removed from this incident, I was there, I saw this. He said, the man who saw it has given his testimony. In other words, I'm swearing to you that this is true, that this is exactly what happened. The man who saw it has given his testimony, and his testimony is true. And then it's as if John reaches out through the ages and, and, and grabs each of us by the shoulders and kind of looks us in the eyes, and, and he says, hey, my testimony is true, and I testify so, so that you will be like me, John would say, so that that you'll be like all the other eyewitnesses, that you, even though you weren't there to see this, even though you, you may live hundreds, thousands of years later, that you would respond the way that I have responded, that you would be able to trust what I am telling you because I'm telling you the truth. He says, so I testify so that you would believe. To which we might respond, well, that's easy, John. So far, so good. So far, we've got, we've got a wannabe Messiah that gets executed by Rome. I can believe that. So far, you've got a rabbi that, that kind of went off the rails a little bit. He fooled his followers, and finally the religious leaders caught up with him. John, I, I, I can believe that. So far, we've got Rome that simply crucified another king. John, we, we believe that. It, that's easy to believe. To which John would say, no, 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 not that part. I want you to believe, I want you to believe that, but, but what happened next? What happened next is the part that you'll have a hard time believing, but I promise you, I, I was there. I swear to you, my testimony is true. What happened next is it, so incredible. And so this is what John says. He says later, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and, and you know, just a, a very specific name because John's giving us a lot of detail here. He says, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, why? why, why? Because you couldn't bury a crucified body unless you, unless you bribe someone. So the centurion on site, or in this case, Pilate, uh, is, is asked, and they ask Pilate for the body, and Pilate gives permission. And, and so Joseph of Arimathea, he comes and he takes the body away. And he was accompanied by someone who, who shows up earlier in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus. 
Uh, Nicodemus was the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. He was one of the religious leaders who, who was kind of on the fence. He wasn't quite sure about Jesus, but he had seen enough and he had heard enough that he thought there may be something to this. And so it says, And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds, uh, you know, basically 75 pounds of things to embalm the body with. Why? Why would you do that? Well, because these men expected Jesus to do what all dead men do. To stay dead. And so it says, And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And this is John's way of remembering and just saying, Oh yeah, there, there will be people who hear this account. Uh, there will be people who read this later and they won't understand all of, the, all of the Jewish customs. And so I just want you to understand what happened because this is such an important moment. And then he says, At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, a cave in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the day was nearby, they laid, Je- they laid Jesus there. Again, this was John's way of saying, hey, hey, they're in a hurry. The sun's about to set, and once the sun sets, the Sabbath begins, and they can't do any of this because all of this work would be unlawful at that point. And so, so they didn't have a lot of time, so they, they hurriedly prepared the body for burial and then they put him in this tomb and they had people roll, roll the stone in front of in front of it and then they left and john along with peter and perhaps others but for sure john and peter they they disappear into the city as well we don't know where where john and peter went that night we don't know uh, what they talked about that night but we know that they probably felt like these last three years had just been a complete waste of time that they were so convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. They had seen all the miracles. They, they were there for all of this. They were so convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But the fact that he was arrested so quickly, the fact that he was crucified so quickly, these events all went by so quickly. And so now they're, they're probably just beginning to catch up emotionally with everything that's happened. And so we don't know exactly what they did that night. And we don't know what they did on, on that silent Saturday. But John tells us that that early the next, early on Sunday morning, they were awakened. That's assuming that they slept at all, but they were awakened to someone who was banging at the door. And, and certainly their first thoughts might have been, okay, well, it's the Roman soldiers, it's the Roman authorities, they've, they've figured out where we're at and they've caught up with us. But, but then you think, well, Roman soldiers don't knock on the door, they just kick the door in and come in. And so they go to the door and they see who's there, and they find at the door Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She had followed Jesus for a long time because Jesus had, had delivered her. And Jesus had performed a miracle for her. And, and she was one of the women that followed Jesus so closely. And, and she was so grateful because Jesus consistently elevated the dignity of women. And Jesus consistently elevated the dignity of children. And, and really just the, the, the dignity of everyone. And here she is so broken hearted. And, and so she's banging on the door. And, and they open the door and she's, she's panicked and she's sobbing. And they can probably barely understand what she's saying. And she says to Peter and to John, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. We went to the tomb to make sure his body was was properly prepared. And when we got there, the stone was rolled away. It it was moved and we looked inside and and there was no body. And so she assumes what everyone would assume. Not a miracle, not a resurrection. None of them believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Nobody expected nobody. And so she looked into an empty tomb and she assumes what, what we would all probably assume in that moment. That somebody has stolen the body. 
and someone, someone's taken the body of Jesus and, and we don't know where they are. We don't know where they've gone. We don't know where they've put him. And John tells us that, that whereas they'd been hiding it in, in the night before, suddenly they felt the urgency of the moment. They knew where Jesus' body had been uh, laid before, and so, so they got to they gotta get there. they got to see for themselves. And so John says, so Peter and the other disciple, he's just talking about himself, they started for the tomb, and, and both are running. But the other disciple, talking about himself, outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. I think John may be a little, little humble brag there for, for just a moment. But, but John says, when I got there, and I got to the outside of the tomb. I, I bent over and I looked in inside the tomb. I didn't go in. I just looked in and there were strips of, of linen lying there. And, and, and he says, you know, why, why would John not go in? Well, it was dark. It was a tomb. And, and he, he's probably scared. There's just so much honesty right here. And, and, you know, he's no hero at all. He's confused as much as everybody else was that, that morning. And then he says, but eventually my friend Simon Peter, he caught up. And, and he came along running, and he just runs straight into the tomb. And why would Simon Peter do that? Well, because that's what Simon Peter always did. Simon Peter was always the first one to speak up. Simon Peter was always the first one to take action. Simon Peter's always the one that seems to be getting in trouble because his mouth seems to, to move faster than his mind. His hands and his feet move faster than his brain does at some point. And so, so he runs straight into the tomb. And John says, here's what we saw. We saw the strangest sight. We, we saw what we did not expect to see. But what we saw in that moment, it convinced us that the world, that our world, was about to change. John says, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth still lying in its place, separate from, from the linen. You know, this wasn't a mess. This wasn't a rush job. You know, if thieves were going to come and steal the body, they wouldn't take the time to, to unembalm or disembalm the body. They, they would have just taken it. And so, so John finally musters up the courage to step inside. He says, I want you to know that, that I went inside, and, and when I went inside, I saw. I saw this, these strips of linen, this, this cloth. And John gives us the formula. He, he gives us the formula that we find throughout the Gospels. This is the formula that he wants his readers to, to leave with because it takes us to the epicenter of the Christian faith. And John said, speaking of himself, he said, he saw and when he saw, he, he put two and two together. He saw the strips of linen and, and, and the, the, all the cloth lying there, and he put two and two together. And he saw, and he believed. And his world was changed. And the world forever would be changed. Because the resurrection of Jesus, it reframed his entire life. It reframed everything about his life. Suddenly it dawned on, on John that everything that Jesus taught was true. Everything that Jesus had said about God the Father was true. He realized in, in that moment where, where they had had a difficult conversation at that final Passover where Philip had said, Hey Jesus, why don't you just show us the Father? And Jesus looks at Philip in, in that conversation. He says to the, to the guys in the room, says, Look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look, I am as close to ever understanding what God is like as you will ever get. So, so follow me. Why else do you think that I came? And it's in that moment when, when John is standing in an empty tomb that it dawns on John that we don't know where, where Jesus is, but clearly he's risen from the dead. I've seen him crucified. I saw him die. I saw him embalmed. I saw him buried. But now, I know that he's risen. And suddenly, everything begins to line up for John. Who could imagine? 
Who, who can imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? You know, Jesus invited a tax gatherer to, to follow. He, he elevated the dignity of every single person, of women and children. He, he spoke to centurions, to the rich, to the poor, to the empowered, to the disempowered. To, you know, this was the God of ages who had stepped down from glory to, to wear my sin and my shame. And that was John's message, that, that in the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word was, you know, don't ask me to explain it. He would say, but all I can say is this, that the Word which was God became flesh and it dwelt among us. The, the, the best way I might be able to describe it is that the light of the world came down and it lit up the world for us. The light of the world entered into the world for all of us. And on that Easter morning, the very first Easter morning, when I recognized that He had risen from the dead, it all came together for me. And I saw and I believed. And John and, and Peter and the others, they would eventually see Jesus alive from the dead. They would see the resurrected Jesus and they would have conversations. And, and John records some of those conversations. But, but one in particular that I want to read to you before, as, as we get ready to close. Because you see, when Jesus was crucified and, and everybody knew the game was over, there was no movement to keep moving. There, there was no cause to keep going. There, there was nothing to keep alive because Jesus declared too much about himself. You know, this wasn't like some other movements where, you know, the leader of, of a movement gets, gets killed or gets assassinated and, and people want to keep the dream alive and, and people want to keep the ideas alive and people want to keep the teaching alive. There was no teaching to keep alive because Jesus, so much of his message was all about him. And so, so that was the future. He was the future. And when they realized that there was no future, Peter and John and, and some of the other disciples, they, they stayed in town and some went back to, to Bethany where Lazarus lived and, and others, they just scattered. We don't, we don't really know where they went. They just knew that there was a price on their head and they'd been followers of Jesus and now they needed to get, to get out of Dodge. And one of those disciples was a disciple that we know as Thomas. And John gives us the, the detail of Jesus' first encounter with Thomas. He says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples. You know, he wasn't there the first time that Jesus met with the disciples. He was not with the disciples, and we told him, we said, Thomas, Thomas, we, we have seen the Lord. Because Jesus' sightings were starting to circulate all over town and, and all over the area, and apparently Thomas had heard about some of these sightings and, and people saying that Jesus is back from the dead. And so Thomas begins to make his way back into the city and he's finally able to reconnect with the disciples. And they're just like, Thomas, hey, where have you been? Uh, Jesus, the, the Lord, he's alive, he's back. We, we don't know what happened, but, but he was dead and now he's alive. But Thomas, he isn't superstitious. Thomas is just, you know, he kind of felt like, hey, I, I just spent the last three years of my life chasing a false messiah and I'm not going to spend the rest of my life chasing a ghost or a rumor about a man who, that you all are saying is alive I, he says this he says fellas unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side I will not believe so John I, I love you but your words are not enough Peter I love you but but I think you're seeing things. The rest of you guys, I love you guys, but no, I'm not going to dedicate the rest of my life talking about a dead man who came back to life unless I actually see him. And who could blame him? Who could blame him? Because seeing always led to believing. And so then John says, says a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. John says, we were, we were in the room and, and then Jesus came and he stood among us and he said, peace be with you. And of course he said, peace be, be, be with us because he, he scared us to death. 
And then he looked at Thomas. Then, then he looked at Thomas and he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See, see my hands. Reach out your hand and, and put it into my side. It was Jesus' way of saying, it's me. It, it really is me. It's me, Thomas. And, and I love this, the, the literal Greek translation of, of this verse that in some of our English translations, it gets a little wonky, but, but I, I love it. It literally says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. That, that's the literal translation. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And John included that little piece of narrative because, because again, it goes back to his central theme. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas when he saw Jesus, and he was able to put his hands in the nail marks, and he was able to, to reach out and touch him. Thomas's response was, my Lord. And I think, wow, my God. And then Jesus told him, Thomas, I understand why you doubt. Thomas, I understand why you didn't believe. Jesus uh, Jesus, like, Thomas, you're just like the rest of these guys. Don't let them fool you. Don't let them give you a nickname like Doubting Thomas because none of them believed. All of them doubted. Not one single guy in this room believed that I had risen from the dead until they saw me, even when they looked into an empty tomb. So don't be deceived. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And then, and are you ready for this? At this moment, Jesus leaves his immediate context. And it's as if he looks through the ages and he looks at you and he looks at me and he leaves this immediate context knowing that this story is going to be told for generations, for for centuries to come. And with you and, and me in mind, he says to the group gathered that day, he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He would say to them, he said, you, you, have, you have believed and blessed are you for believing, but you saw. You saw all the miracles. You, you saw all the signs that I did. You have been with me for the last three years. You saw me crucified and you have seen me risen from the dead. So blessed are you for, for seeing and believing. But blessed are those who are going to live centuries from now. Who aren't going to have the chance to, to see me. But are only going to be able to, to read what you have documented. Blessed are those who have not seen and in yet believed. And then John closes his account with this. He closes it with an invitation for all of us. And, and his invitation is it, it's simple. It's what he has said throughout his gospel. John would say, I, I just want you to believe that. I just want you to trust. And I, I want you to believe that my testimony is true. I want you to believe that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. And, and once you're convinced that he, that he is who he claimed to be, I want you to take one more step. I want you to place your trust in Jesus. Here's the way he would say it. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We saw them. Uh, we, we, we just didn't document them all. But these, the ones that I've selected, the conversations that, I, that I've picked, the, the signs that I've selected, the miracles that, that I've chosen, I, I've written them not simply so that you would know what happened. These have been written by me and, I, and I've ordered them in such a way that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the believe that, that, that I want you to take my word for what he said about himself. I want you to believe that. And, and then I want you to do one more thing. He would say, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want you to believe that. I, I want you to personally trust in Jesus. And, and why? why? Why would he say that? And he said, I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Because, because the, 
what happened that morning that, that sealed, that punctuated, that authenticated the promise that his buried body began to breathe and out of the silence that, that we thought would be silent forever, the, the roaring lion declared that the grave has no claim on any of us, has no claim on you, it has no claim on me. John would say, that's why I want you to believe that. He would say, for God so loved the world. John concluded that, that after being with Jesus, that, that he so loved the world that he would give up his son, the light of the world, that, that the word would become flesh, and that whoever, and, he, and here it is, that whoever would believe in him would not be lost to God. They would not perish, but that they would have everlasting life. This was Jesus' invitation to John, that your heavenly Father, and, and it's your heavenly Father's invitation to all of us, and, and our hope this Easter season is that this would become personal for you. That, that based on John's account, that you would believe that. And then you would trust in Jesus and you would take that next step in your faith. That you would have life in His name. That you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The only question is, do you believe? Do you believe who Jesus claimed that He was? How do you answer the question, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah the Son of God. Do you believe that? As, as we close our time this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us and then Tim is going to come and he's going to lead us in another time of, of worship. But I want you to know this. I want you to know that just because church buildings are closed, that churches are not closed. I want you to know that if, if this is resonating with you and you need to take your next step in, in faith, uh, we want you to reach out to us. Um, there, there are a myriad of ways that we can be in conversation with you about what it looks like to take your next step in faith. And we want to invite you to do that. Whether you've been a believer for, for 40 years or this is the first time that you've ever even given thought to who Jesus might be. We want to encourage you to take your next step in, in, your, in your journey with Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. We are so thankful that... Um, you, you silenced the, the silence on Saturday by, by a deafening roar on Sunday. Thank you that uh, the grave, because of what Jesus did that Easter morning, has no claim on, on me. Thank you that it has no claim on anyone else who would believe that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And so we ask this morning that, that you would press into, into our lives the need to believe, the need to take the next step in, in our walk with you. And so, Father, would, would people begin to reach out uh, to, to their neighbors, to, to their coworkers, to their family, to, to their friends, and they would just follow this one simple command that you have given, that, that the terms of this new covenant that you've created for all of us be that we would love one another as you have loved us. Father, thank you for loving us so well that you would give your son so that we might be able to overcome death and spend eternity with you. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.